this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by BizBuySell.com, the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. So here's a challenge. I want you to type into Google business for sale. What comes up? My guess is one of the first top three natural search listings that pop up is going to be BizBuySell.com. They are by long shot the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. They've got something like 47,000 businesses listed for sale. They've also got one of the largest directories of business brokers online. So if you're looking to have some help and support taking your business to market and you want to find a business broker, it's a place, great place to go. They've also put together recently a guide to selling a small business. You know, if you think about what we're all about here at Built to Sell Radio, it's about helping you take your business to market, helping point out some of the big pitfalls, some of the big obstacles to taking your business to market. And this guidebook can be a really good little tips and tricks on what to think about before you go to sell. You can download it by going to bizbysell.com slash built. That's bizbysell.com forward slash built. All right, let's cue up Dave Ripley. So Dave started a business called Glidera in the whole cryptocurrency space. So he developed some tools that basically allowed developers themselves to exchange and integrate Bitcoin wallets and cryptocurrency. And if you're as confused as I am by this entire category, the first 15 minutes of this interview is for you, where I really try to get Dave to explain in layman's terms what the big deal is about Bitcoin and specifically in cryptocurrencies in general. So if you know all about this stuff, you've read Don Tapscott's book, then go ahead and skip through the first 15 minutes. If you want a bit of a primer, you may want to pay attention for the first few minutes. Uh, you can hear some lots of good stuff from, from Dave. You know, one of the things I really liked about this interview is when he draw the distinction between, or drew the distinction between pitching an acquirer and pitching an investor which is a very different approach. He also talked about the rise of Bitcoin in general and, and, and why and how it's kind of being used as an alternative to fiat currencies. Um, you'll also get a little bit of a glimpse inside the Accelerator tech stars, how to apply and what kind of percentage equity they take. Um, and also how to avoid sort of being taken advantage of in the incestuous community that is the angel investor space. Lots of good stuff from Dave Ripley. Dave Ripley. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So, Glidera, how did you get into this business in the first place? Oh, yeah. Geez, great question. So, um, you know, I'd kind of been in and around the technology industry most of my career. And upon finishing uh, business school, I went and worked for a large strategy consulting firm, uh, the Boston Consulting Group. Kind of, you know, saw a lot of different industries, but I was really interested in getting back into the technology industry. And it was in 2013, an individual who came to be my co-founder actually told me about this new thing called Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, I was uh, actually kind of had entrepreneurship in the front of my mind, back of my mind for quite a, quite, quite a number of years. And, you know, I, I, he, he mentioned Bitcoin to me. I kind of started to learn a little bit more about it and was just incredibly intrigued, enthralled, and, and really immersed myself in the topic. He, uh, this individual, my co-founder, Mike, was, uh, was quite the same on that, on that dimension. And we just kind of 
the ball kept rolling. We became more and more interested, learned more and more about it, uh, saw a fantastic opportunity in the space, and uh, that led to Glidera. So what was the opportunity that you guys saw? Well, you know, for, for, for us, actually, um, you, know, we, you know, first and foremost, and I guess what I was referencing there was, was really just the, the, the opportunity of cryptocurrency in general and just the potential of cryptocurrency, uh, you know, and, and the implications it had for, you know, financial services and beyond, uh, you know, not just here in kind of the U.S., but, but more broadly globally. And that was really what we uh, what we really were intrigued and enthralled about. We we set out, um, you know, to to actually you know, we made the decision to kind of dive into this space. And upon doing so, we kind of iterated through a number of different opportunities uh, in the space uh, as we kind of evolved the business to identify what was going to be, you know, kind of a meaningful path or, you know, product or solution for us to build. So what did you end up building? So what we ended up, uh, so what, you know, Glidera as a, as a business was and what we, we launched as a product is we basically offered a way for uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency wallet and application developers to add Bitcoin buying and selling into their apps. And so you had, we kind of saw the market and there were a number of different wallet and, uh, you know, kind of cryptocurrency wallet and other application developers. And they all faced, you know, similar problem. They had this challenge of the individual user opens up the wallet and they see a zero Bitcoin balance. And they didn't, there wasn't really a way for any of these different wallet developers to, to solve that problem with a nice, simple, easy experience inside their wallet. And so we, we built a solution for those developers to, to solve that challenge. You got to go slow for me here because, I mean, I've heard about Bitcoin and it all just sounds a little bit Star Trek-y to me. You know what I mean? Like, it just, like, I don't get it at all. I know there's a guy out there, actually a Torontonian, who wrote a book about Bitcoin. I haven't read it. Don't, like, assume I know nothing about Bitcoin cryptocurrency. It all sounds Greek to me. Explain it to me like I'm a 12-year-old. Yeah, sure. No, this is <laughs> this is definitely understood. Uh, I, I, of course, been in the industry for for many years, so I, I can I can often kind of roll past that 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 initial point on what is this new crazy thing? What do you mean a new currency? Um, you know, so it's interesting. What you know, what you know, Bitcoin uh, fundamentally is is it's a distributed network. Um, of a number number of different you know participants in the network that work together to maintain the integrity of this this ledger. The ledger itself um, has one job, and that is to uh, record every Bitcoin transaction that has ever happened in uh, the, the the history of the the network. And so you know what is what does that sound like? It sounds like a database. And it is. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, Bitcoin itself is nothing more than just a database. The unique difference is, uh, you know, we're, we're familiar with databases that basically sit on a server and someone owns the server and manages the server. And, you know, for the most part, we kind of call these, uh, you know, central, centralized, trusted parties that do this. And this is, you know, effectively the role a bank, bank plays to, to manage account balances for 
for for its customers. Bitcoin is much the same. It's basically a, a database to manage all of the all of the history of all the transactions and therefore balances. But as opposed to being a centralized database managed by a trusted third party, it is actually managed and there are thousands, tens of thousands of replicas of this database and managed by the participants themselves. And they all kind of work together to achieve uh, what's called consensus, uh, which is basically ensuring that there is kind of one gold copy that everyone uses uh, for the for the for the actual ledger. Isn't it isn't it hugely susceptible to fraud or to cyber attacks? Like if everything's yeah, in this kind of like a distributed network, nobody controls it, nobody backs it up. Isn't it isn't it super susceptible to somebody just ha- some you know hacker just kind of basically hacking into the system. Yeah, I mean this is this is precisely the the right next question. Uh it in and you know historically what I just described was something that many individuals wanted to see as uh you know a possibility somehow we could have this database and no one actually owns it and therefore uh you know we 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 have this kind of decentralized network you know kind of mutually managed by all of the participants. And this this didn't exist uh, for many, many, many years. And the innovation of Bitcoin was really, uh, you know, basically a a way in in which all of these different participants can achieve, uh, you know, consensus such that no one individual can, you know, defraud others. Effectively, the way the way it works without getting into the technical details is any any participant that attempts to uh, kind of move away from consensus or, you know, for example, add an entry to assign a bunch of Bitcoin to themselves effectively is economically punished for doing so. And uh, that that effectively requires resources for them to do so. And because you know the the remainder of remainder of the participants uh, don't uh, accept that transaction. The the fraudster, if you will, will have spent resources to uh, you know to effectively defraud the uh, the the ledger, and those resources will end up uh, you know being wasted. I guess that probably the most meaningful thing to share is um, there are definitely individuals in many fraudsters from other worlds out there trying to do uh, what you what you've just said and right now there's a roughly about a hundred billion dollar bounty uh, for anyone to successfully achieve uh, what you just described and, and, and thus far it's it is it has not happened um, so so help me understand the business opportunity you saw. Because I, I just you you described it out of, the, out of the gate, and I didn't still quite get what the what Gladera did, if you will. So maybe you could describe it now that I know a little bit more about Bitcoin. Sure. Yeah. No. So you know, one of the things that we saw in the the industry uh, back in back in that time frame, call it 2013, 14, where there were a number of different wallet, uh, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency wallet developers. And you know, the numbers started to prol- proliferate as 
you know, there, you know, weren't, you know, any kind of significant barriers to entry. It was just simply building a, a software application. Of course, it needed to be a, you know, secure application and usable and all those different types of things. But it wasn't as if there was, you know, a significant uh, you know, set of like regulatory license requirements or what have you that you kind of see in the existing fintech industry, uh, you know, where, where other, you know, kind of digital wallets kind of face those challenges and barriers to entry. So we saw the number proliferate. We saw it was actually a meaningful part of the ecosystem. We initially thought that maybe it made sense to, to build a wallet ourselves. Um, we kind of started talking to many of the, I guess at that time we refer to as peers in the industry, uh, competitors in some ways that were also building other wallets. And this is, you know, a wallet, I mean, I, I, just to define the term, it's fairly simplistic, right? It's basically something that allows you to store, send, and receive cryptocurrency. And then there were many different variations on that, with various different security models and other different bells and whistles. Some, some of them built more for consumers, some built more for businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, all all of these various wallet development companies out there really suffered from one challenge. They didn't have an easy way to integrate into their wallets or applications a way for their users to buy and sell Bitcoin. And so we uh, set out to basically build kind of a, a set of developer tools, really, you know, an API first API only company, if you will, to allow them to add that functionality. Uh, buying and selling Bitcoin and cryptocurrency into their into their wallets. Why would someone want to buy and sell cryptocurrency? Yeah, so I mean, you know, fundamentally, I mean, you know, obviously the industry is in, incredibly, uh, incredibly new, and so you know, an individual that wants to wants to hold or or spend uh, cryptocurrency, they need to obtain some, and the easiest way to obtain some is to you know, buy it using their, you know, domestic local fiat currency, whatever that is, U.S. dollars or euros or so forth. Um, you know, why why would they actually want to, you know, hold or or spend cryptocurrency? I mean, that that gets in kind of goes back to the, uh, you know, the the initial, uh, you know, premise of of Bitcoin and in cryptocurrency and, and the benefits that it, it could actually offer to to its users. So let me give you a, a specific example. Let, let's just say Amazon.com uh, wants people to be able to use cryptocurrency or Bitcoin to buy their books and whatever else they buy from Amazon. So you would yep. supply a, the, a basically the developer that's going to develop that wallet for Amazon. They might use your tools to, to develop that wallet. Exactly. And, and then certainly the the various different consumers and customers that would go to Amazon to pay for something in, in Bitcoin, uh, the, the different developers building wallets for all of those customers, those uh, businesses would also be our customers. So don't mind the stupid questions, but I feel like it's kind of like people who believe in UFOs. Like, like the people actually use this currency thinking, think like, what are they thinking? Do they think that, that, the U.S. dollar is going to go away, or do they think there's some big conspiracy? Like, I still don't get why somebody would would want to. Like, let's say I want to buy a book on Amazon. Why do I care? Like, it's 
I mean, we have a currency. What's wrong with the US dollar? What's wrong with euros? What's wrong with all the other currencies we have? That's, I still stuck on that sort of why piece. I mean, what's the, what's the, what am I missing? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I, I think that's, that's, you know, a part of your, part of your question there actually has the answer in there. So in truth, um, you know, the benefits of, of cryptocurrency are, you know, that it, that it is in fact, uh, borderless, right? I mean, you could effectively send, you know, if you wanted millions of dollars uh, worth of Bitcoin across the world with negligible fees and, you know, negligible time delay. Um, so this kind of global aspect is quite, quite meaningful for cryptocurrency. And what I just described actually isn't possible with uh, fiat currency, right? Isn't, isn't really possible with, with U.S. dollars to move that amount of money and that amount of time for, for negligible, negligible cost. Um, it's, you know, possible at some cost and some time delay for someone in the U.S. to do that. But it, for someone that's in, you know, for example, Argentina or Venezuela or the Ukraine or many other parts of the world, it's flat out not possible at all. And so really, in truth, a lot of the you know, the the adoption and in, in where the benefits for cryptocurrency are the strongest happen to be outside of the the U.S., right? In, in part, and in, in, in it's also kind of the answer, the reason why I was in your question, which is, you know, the U.S. dollar works pretty darn good. Um, you know, it, it, it actually allows us to you know, make payments fairly easily within inside the United States. Um, you know, fairly quickly, uh, with fairly little risk. The U.S. dollar mostly holds its value, loses, you know, maybe a couple percent per year. But compare that to uh, you know, many of the other fiat currencies out there in various different parts of the world that uh, lose, you know, 10, 20 percent or more of their value in a given year, uh, where the individuals of those countries have absolutely no way to send value outside of their country uh, whatsoever. Uh, this, this ends up being kind of the delta of, you know, benefit of cryptocurrency versus their alternative in these other countries ends up being quite drastic. That's interesting, especially in light of what's going on in Venezuela right now as I record this. Uh, they had an election there. The incumbent government was being thrown out because the currencies deflated what or inflated something like three hundred percent a year or some. I may be getting the numbers wrong, but it's it's chaos in Venezuela right now, and 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 uh, you know a big part of that is the currency lo losing value, its buying power, right? Yeah, yeah, no. So I mean, so it's it's really. I mean, this is really the you know you kind of you're, you're asking all the right questions, of course. I mean, the you know in the U.S. the you know, the value proposition to use it as a, you know, day-to-day -day transaction currency and, uh, you know, as a replacement, if you will, for transacting in U.S. dollars isn't, isn't anywhere near as compelling as, as it is in, you know, other parts of the world.
Got it. So you guys see an opportunity in providing these developer tools, and that's kind of where you landed. I understand you went to Techstars, or you were selected for Techstars. I mean, talk to, I mean, people have kind of heard about Techstars if they're in the kind of technology space, but maybe aren't quite familiar with what it is. So maybe you could just tell us what Techstars is, how you get up, you know, how you applied, how you get chosen, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So Techstars is a was actually a quite meaningful part of. Uh, Glidera's, uh, you know, tenure as a as a business. I, you know, I, you know, first off, can't say enough good things about about the the organization and the the people that that run TechStars, uh, you know, there in Chicago and then more broadly as well. Um, so you know, TechStars is you know referred to as a as an accelerator. Um, they uh, the way the the program is structured is. They, you know, accept applications from several hundred. I think, you know, our, our particular class was roughly 700, 700 or 800 different companies. And they kind of go through an application process with a series of, you know, submitting information about your company and interviews with various different people within Techstars to whittle the list down and select uh, what they view as the top 10 companies. Uh, you know, in the application pool, they select those top 10 companies and then bring them in for a kind of, a, you know, a summer of immersion in uh, you know, building, uh, you know, focused on many different areas of kind of building and scaling uh, their businesses. Um, and this kind of covers all, all different, you know, dimensions of the business from the technical side, the market side, sales, uh, you know, product. Uh, organizationally recruiting all different dimensions. In addition, there's also a lot of different exposure to potential investors and partners, other different uh, avenues, particularly for B2B companies to uh, accessing potential customers and so forth. So, so, so yeah, venture so capitalists, uh, for the most part, and angel investors will act as you know mentors for the Techstars program, is that right? And then get sort of deal flow out of it? They, they get a first glimpse at some kind of emerging companies? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, all of those various different, you know, elements of the business, uh, you know, and how the, the program's actually structured to, you know, help businesses, you know, kind of scale and, and grow their businesses across all those different dimensions. Really, the mechanism that's used to do that is precisely what you just said, or kind of, you know, connecting the founders with a number of different mentors, you know, really dozens of different mentors that happen to be, you know, many of them former entrepreneurs themselves, uh, you know, some, you know, various different relevant industries for the given businesses. And yes, many of them uh, that, you know, that happen to be, you know, angel or, or venture capital, venture capital investors as well. And so did you and Mike have to give up some equity to go through Techstars or like, what's the compensation like? Do they take a piece of the action or, or is it just on the back end when, when a VC funds a Techstars alumni? Yeah, no. So Techstars itself as an accelerator is, is almost a variation on a venture capital firm. And so Techstars provides some, you know, nominal amount of cash and they take equity in return, right? Well, so, I mean, they provide some amount of cash, access to the program and everything that the, the program provides. And it is run by one or one or two managing directors that, you know, in, in the case of Techstars Chicago, happen to be 
incredibly successful entrepreneurs themselves. And, uh, they, you know, they, they kind of guide companies through this, you know, multi-month, uh, program. And, and so that plus the cash is, is, uh, effectively what's, uh, in exchange for, for equity in each of those 10 businesses. And is the equity position the same? Like how much equity do they take? Is it the same for every company? Yeah, I believe it's, you know, it's fairly standard. There's, there is a little bit of an option based on, you know, whether you'd raise money before and how much cash you actually want to take from uh, Techstars. And it might actually vary a little bit from, you know, one uh, Techstars node to the next, you know, one one city to the next, if you will. Uh, but the range is, at least when we went through, I guess, you know, now being 2015, so a couple of years ago, it was uh, six to eight percent, I think. So okay. in that range. Okay. Yeah. So Mike owns part of the business, you own part of the business and Techstars owns a piece. How did you finance the, the rest of it? I mean, did you raise another round of friends and family money or, or was there another VC in, at the table? Yeah, that's correct. So we, we, um, we also raised as part of Techstars, uh, some funding through a collection of, uh, really a collection of angel investors, uh, you know, largely in part through, you know, a, a one particular syndicate and then, uh, some additional angels beyond that as well. And how did you guys value the company for the purposes of taking on those angel investors? Yeah. So it's a great question. I mean, you know, just, it's, it's interesting. I mean, part, part of my context, I, you know, it's been a number of years at this, you know, firm, Boston Consulting Group, work with Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, I worked on M&A deals for large Fortune 500 uh, companies, right? And kind of the amount of quantitative analysis and rigor and so forth that goes into valuations for those M&A deals of these large companies is, you know, significant and extreme and it's deep and it's detailed and all those different types of things. And, you know, when we get down to it and we're valuing, uh, uh, you know, small startup companies, there tends to be a lot more, at least in my experience, hand waving that that goes into the the process. In, in you know the 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 closest thing you can get to uh, actually putting some type of a meaningful valuation on a a company really is what you know what's the alternative? Is someone else willing to pay a, a similar price or more? And and that's you know kind of what it breaks down to. You know, in that process, I mean, I would, I mean, just to come back to it, I think that's where Techstars was infinitely valuable. And so they, you know, that they're in a, a situation where they've seen, you know, dozens, hundreds of other similar startups go through a funding process and uh, interact with, uh, you know, many different investors you know, through that, that process of actually defining what the terms of investment are going to be. And so there was a lot of reference points that, uh, you know, that, that were available. It sounds, for, it sounds kind of cozy though, right? So like you've got the tech stars, the, the accelerator, you know, all their friends get sort of roped into being, you know, judges and mentors and so forth. And it's the same people who are the ones raising the money or investing the money. So how do you avoid, kind of getting taken advantage of by all these supposedly, you know, smart people around the table, because they all sort of are kind of colluding together in a way, if they're all part of this 
broader ecosystem. How do you kind of not make sure you're not being taken advantage of, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would say that's true, absolutely true of Techstars. And I would say that's really true of early stage investing in general. I mean, it, in, the, in the big scheme of things, you know, even, you know, obviously the, the Bay Area is where, you know, Silicon Valley is where a lot of, you know, early stage funding happens. And, they, you know, there's obviously a, a larger community, but it's still in many ways, you know, quite cozy as well. Right. Where there's there, there's only so many people and there there, you know, many of the investors are quite quite incredibly well networked in general and quite well networked uh, among themselves. And so there is this information flow about what companies are out there and, and what companies are available and so forth. There is, in some instances, some element of uh, competition among the venture capital firms or, or even angel investors, right? And so for what, what, for whatever reason, companies get viewed as, you know, the the hot deals, if you will, or the most attractive deals. There is some, there can be some element of scarcity, hmm. right? And, you know, various different venture capital firms will want to, you know, participate in those deals. And there is some element of scarcity. There's only so much funding a company will be interested to to bring on. And so to the extent that that scarcity exists, um, that's usually what is kind of the driver to maybe counteract some of this coziness, if you will, uh, you know, that, that you would see within you know, really any, any area, whether it's Chicago or, or uh, you know, any other part of the U.S., Canada, Silicon Valley, you name it. Got it. So, so you get funded through the Techstars process. I mean, take us through the next couple of years of the business itself. I mean, were you successful in developing these tools for the wallet uh, folks, wallet developers? Yeah. So, so great question. So, you know, the part of part of what was involved with uh, delivering this service for these wallet developers uh, in in its kind of original. Uh, depiction of the service was one of the reasons why it was so challenging for these different wall developers to add this uh, functionality was that it required interacting with the quote unquote, you know, existing or legacy financial system, which required a huge slew of different regulatory and compliance considerations, uh, relationships with existing financial institutions, i.e. banks and uh, a lot of those elements required, you know, significant amount of upfront preparation and development and, you know, a bit of luck along the way to to achieve. And so there was, you know, for Glidera, a number, a, definitely a, a significant amount of time involved in just putting all of those pieces in place. Right. So building out a highly secure platform that's also compliant from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, working with a legal team to make sure that, you know, the, the kind of the regulatory approach for whatever geographies we're going to operate in uh, was was set and sound. 
And then also establishing relationships with, you know, banks or payment processors to actually help facilitate the fiat side of the processing. And so that was, um, in some ways, you know, fintech companies, they, uh, you know, it's a bit more challenging to apply the, you know, kind of the lean startup model to fintech companies. Uh, you know, there's a lean startup model. I imagine, you know, Jen, you might be familiar. Many, many of the, the individuals, uh, you know, listening to this that are familiar with companies, right? It's kind of like build something very quickly, get it out there, see what, see what, you know, how customers, uh, you know, what kind of feedback they they give you. Do they like it? Are they willing to pay for it or not? A lot of that is more challenging in the fintech space, just given all these various different, you know, regulatory compliance things kind of have this long, long run of uh, prep that's required. And so there was a big part of the business that that went through all of those steps to, to put all of that in place. That sounds hideously complex. <laughs> is that was that your role? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it really, it really was a significant piece of it, and it, it, it and agreed. I mean, it, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a different, different type of experience uh, starting a, a fintech business than, well, I shouldn't say you know quite so generally, but you know, many fintech businesses that you know are in the regulated space, uh, you know, it is quite quite significant of a lift. And yeah, I was definitely intimately involved with, with really all those pieces. So take us up to the acquisition. What, what, what precipitated the acquisition of Glitter? Well, you know, I mean, I guess there were a couple, you know, there are a couple fundamental drivers. Um, but really what, what it broke down to was the following. You know, Glidera had built uh, at the end of the day, we kind of built the service, got it out there. We signed up uh, a number of the you know larger wallet developers as partners, and they integrated the API and implemented it. But at the end of the day, what Glidera had built was a much better uh, product or service than a full business, if you will. And so the the product or service was used and it was valued in 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 you know both the partners and the customers there was a you know path to monetize it and, and revenue coming in but it it wasn't actually uh, you know a business in that it was going to uh, reach a significant level of scale with just that solution. It turns out in order to reach a, a certain level of scale, just given where the, the industry was at at the time, required uh, kind of broadening the offering into what's you know more or less referred to as a, a full-blown exchange, uh, so cryptocurrency exchange that offers um, you know full liquidity for traders and market makers and, and others in kind of a full-blown exchange similar to NASDAQ uh, that offers a way to kind of trade back and forth across all these various different types of fiat currencies and cryptocurrencies. And that was, you know, really the path to get to a, you know, fully scalable business beyond just a, you know, a, a nice product or service that, that you know, individuals or, um, 
you know, businesses would be interested in using. So, so take me up to the acquisition then. So, so why not build the, um, the exchange if that's what you think that the next evolution was? Yeah, it's a great question. So the way, you know, Glidera worked is that the, the exchanges that already exist, existed within the, within the industry were in fact, I guess you refer to them as, uh, Glidera partners as well. So Glidera would work with them as kind of like the sources, like the key sources of liquidity within the industry. Right. And so they were effectively our partners as well. And so we knew, um, you know, you know, several of them very to varying degrees, uh, within the industry. And, and just from our standpoint, looking at the industry and, and where those businesses stood and you know, what it would take for, for Glidera to actually build all of that out, move into that space and, and compete with our existing partners uh, that were these sources of liquidity was, uh, was going to be a really significant uh, step to, to go down. That would require a huge amount of additional capital and to, to, to get there. You know, meanwhile, at the same time, you know, what, you know, a handful of, you know, different exchanges that we worked with, you know, saw the potential of this being a nice, you know, uh, bolt on product or service to their existing exchanges as something that might be attractive. And so we kind of made the decision and it was very much, you know, kind of, product, business, market-driven, you know, maybe less, <laughs> you know, motion, if you will, and, and you know, where things stood, uh, you know, with, you know, with our, our own perspectives and uh, to, you know, to just go the route of actually combining with, with one of these existing exchanges. So take me through the next step. Did you take the, the business to market? Did you hire an M&A banker? Like what was the next step in the process? Yeah. So, so good question. Um, you know, we, we, yeah, we, we, we did just that. We launched on the process to actually have this discussion with several of these other exchanges about what that would, what that would look like and their perspectives on the opportunity of, of combining, uh, combining Glidera with, with their businesses. And this would, I mean, it wasn't in any instance, a merger of equals, it, you know, it truly was an acquisition. All these other exchanges were larger, uh, larger businesses at, you know, every step of the way. Did you intentionally avoid the word acquisition? Because you've said combine now twice, and I'm wondering if that was strategic in your head not to use the word acquisition. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think it, uh, you know, you know, frankly, that was somewhat conscious. Um, Why? I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> it was somewhat conscious, though, though maybe not, you know, didn't receive a huge amount of analysis <laughs> to, to arrive at that word choice. Um, I do think there is, a, you know, there is a, a bit of the, uh, you know, the kind of collaborative uh, connotation of the term, uh, you know, the, the, the combination as opposed to more of the, uh, I don't know, transactional nature of the, the term acquisition. And so, you know, one of the things that, any, you know, any one of these businesses would be concerned about, you know, given they weren't, you know, incredibly large, large companies themselves would be, 
just as, uh, you know, upon acquisition, are things going to mesh well with team members and, and is everything going to integrate in smoothly or is this going to frankly be more trouble than it's worth and, you know, not allow us to realize any value. And so, um, you know, that was certainly one of the, one of the things that was top of mind uh, going through the process. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Gladier was a business that had, uh, you know, the technology platform. It had the uh, integrations into these different partners and wallets, uh, and therefore some some end consumers. And then, you know, it was also the, uh, you know, the team as well. It was, if we were to kind of move forward with this acquisition and the team didn't, come along with it. Um, you know, technology ends up being worth very little if, if, uh, if the team that, that built the technology and knows it um, disappears. How many employees so, were there at Glidear at this time? Yeah, so we, were, we're, we kind of you know, fluctuated over time and uh, you know, the, the business was, you know, didn't top out into the double digits, uh, but for just a, a short time. Um, and then, you know, upon acquisition, uh, you know, the the acquirers, they were really just interested in, you know, engineers, um, you know, primarily and, uh, you know, coming along. And then, I, you know, myself, of course, as well. Got it. So how did you get the the, the various exchanges interested in in buying Glider or partnering with Glider or whatever? I mean, did you did you play one off the other? Did you accept letters of intent from multiple sources? Did you? kind of focus on Kraken pretty quickly? Yeah, so great question. You know, I, I mean, I think you know, this is one of the, the pieces where when we, when we went out and started talking to different exchanges, and, and some that I would certainly encourage, uh, you know, encourage everyone else out there to do. I wanted, one of the things that I've, you know, been, I've been involved in this kind of area, right, corporate development, M&A, uh, you know, fairly heavily previously, previous to my, you know, my experience again is, you know, with larger corporations and so forth. And then even now somewhat at, you know, at Kraken where, you know, I, some of the different potential uh, targets or, or companies that Kraken might acquire come across my desk. You know, one of the things that I see all too frequently in the early stage um, world are that, I mean, almost exclusive is the majority of what I see from from early stage companies. Uh, they kind of go in and in pitch to an inquirer exactly how they would pitch to a venture capital firm raising funding. Like, here's our business model, and here's how we make money, and here's why this is a great product, and all those various different types of things. And they, and you know, it's not pitched as. Okay, here, here, here you are, XYZ acquirer and acquiring company. And if you were to uh, acquire us as a, as a business, here would be the you know, four areas of synergy and how it would drive value to your business upon doing so. And that's you know, what we put together. And it, it requires, you know, of course, these various different exchanges were similar, but... <clears throat> had some you know similarity but it does require some customization for each and every acquirer you know, so, so fairly different than kind of going through the funding process with vcs 
uh, where you can actually take a fairly similar set of materials to each and every one because it's kind of the same business model and so forth. This is actually the unique combination of two companies and requires actually looking at it through the lens of the acquirer and what are they actually interested in with this business and where are they actually going to drive value. And so we put that together for kind of each and every one of the acquirers and, you know, and went to, to go out and uh, you know, discuss with them. Got it. And how many did you get interested? You know, there was, <clears throat> there was probably a half dozen that kind of moved beyond a half dozen out of uh, maybe, you know, slightly more than like 15 plus or so uh, that, that, you know, became interested in, you know, enough to kind of look to a second meeting or, uh, you know, bring other individuals involved. Um, you know, we went into, I guess, what, what I refer to as uh, due diligence with, uh, with a few companies. So three. Got it. And Got it. And how many actually went to the letter of intent stage? Um, so actually going to, you know, kind of, yeah, letter of intent and, and moving into the deep uh, reviewing an actual purchase agreement. Yeah, that was just Kraken. Got it. And so what was it about Kraken that in their offer and their discussions that, that was attractive to you guys? Well, I mean, gosh, I, you know, I've been here here now, and I I, I didn't realize how how fantastic <laughs> the opportunity was until until I actually now that I've been here for for a year. Um, but you know, I mean, I think you know, for you know, from from their perspective in in ours, I mean, there's you know, their approach towards. Uh, you know, the industry and really focusing on this, uh, you know, cryptocurrency space and, uh, you know, not deviating from from this path was, you know, really attractive to us, kind of like their uh, clarity of vision uh, for the business and, and how it aligned with us. I mean, at the time, there were a lot of other companies in the space, our, you know, peers to both of our companies and others that had uh, kind of went down this path of pursuing development of private blockchain solutions. So basically some type of private, you know, cryptocurrency-esque type solution to offer it directly to banks or other large financial institutions, you know, almost as like a B2B software company. And, you know, Kraken didn't follow that path whatsoever. And, and that was kind of, you know, our perspective as well. So that was... Uh, you know, quite positive that, you know, the, the vision of the, you know, the two businesses were aligned on, you know, on, on kind of the longer term as well, which was, which was good. So at the time of the acquisition, you had a number of shareholders, obviously the Techstars guys had a piece, the angel investment around the angels, you know, collectively had a piece, Mike had a piece, you had a piece. What was the collective reaction of the investors to Kraken's offer? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think we're pretty fortunate. The so we were. This is this is now. Let me see. We're we're, we're actually not that far out of TechStars, but we're certainly out of TechStars at this point in time. Um, and I guess by the time we, we do the deal, it's, you know, it's over a year out of, out of Techstars. Um, 
but um, I, you know, I guess first off, you know, highly, highly supportive. And, uh, you know, as it turns out that, you know, that same group, you know, particularly among the, the Techstars crew, they're, they're also quite well versed in uh, selling companies. And, you know, frankly, it turned out to be an incredible, uh, you know, benefit to have them as, as advisors through the, through the process. And yeah, they were, they were able to, you know, provide very helpful perspective on, on kind of all facets of, of moving forward with the deal. So what kind of return on investment did they get? Cause they only held the shares for about a year or maybe two. So like if I put in a hundred dollars in the Techstar round, what would I have gotten out of the, uh, at the acquisition end? Yeah, I mean, the, their terms, um, you know, as, as they get up are, are, are good terms, I guess. I mean, you know, be, because Techstars puts in so much uh, sweat equity, if you will, which, you know, doesn't go on on the paper. Right. And so they, you know, they they made out to, you know, the you know positive, if you will, just, uh, you know, at the time of the deal over that that short time period, you know, fortunate enough for them, the uh, and for all of us, really. The you know the this industry that we're in has done better than uh, a 10x uh, since uh, you know since the acquisition and, and and Kraken turns out to have moved into a position as one of the global leaders and in, in top few businesses out there and so you know really that 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 has led to uh, you know great great benefit where <laughs> there's been um, you know probably even more so. Um, you know, appreciation since then. Oh, this is obviously meaningful. I mean, obviously there was kind of like a, an equity component in the deal uh, as well. And so that, that's why obviously this is, this is meaningful for kind of the Glidera shareholders. Uh, I see. Well. So Glidera shareholders in some cases rolled their equity from Glidera into Kraken. Is that right? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So yet to be seen what kind of return, but it looks good. Is, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Like I said, I mean, it, I mean, I, again, I mean, I, I realize it's a, a small industry, but for, I still at this point, but, you know, we think it's going to be uh, incredibly large and, you know, someday, but it, it has done literally over a 10 X in, in less than a, basically since the start of 2017. And, and that's coming off a high growth year in 2016 as well. And so we're, we're talking about really uh, fantastic growth for the overall cryptocurrency industry. And, and, and Kraken is, is not only, you know, kept pace, but, but done a great job of, of, of being a global leader through, through this whole time frame. And when you say growth, what, what exactly do you mean? Like in terms of a 10 X growth, is that, you know, Kraken's revenue or is that Bitcoin adoption number of, you know, number of uh, transactions used, used using Bitcoin? Like what is, what do you mean by 10 X groves? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more of the, more of the latter. Um, you know, the, I guess the, the different metrics that I would, I would use, I mean, are, you know, really most of them are kind of in this, this 10 X range. And so that kind of is, is, is true of all of them. But I mean, so, you know, one is most meaningful for an exchange business would be trade volume. Right. And that's, you know, kind of public data that's out there, uh, the trade volume of the various different exchanges. And so that's, uh, you know, seen, you know, an order of magnitude growth. 
Um, and then you know, what kind of follows from that is, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And this is less direct for, you know, the, a business or an exchange business, but yeah, the network itself. So the number of different people that are involved in cryptocurrency, holding it, using it, whatever, yeah, has grown significantly. I don't have that exact data, but I mean, our sense is, is that, you know, that, that population has done, you know, a similar you know, potentially order of magnitude increase as well. And, you know, so all of this, you know, obviously kind of translates into, you know, basically success for, you know, for, for cracking. Cause I mean, the, that's how the, the, you know, it's no secret. That's how the product is monetized with, you know, fees based on trade volume. And so trade, trade volume for sure. It, it's a fascinating story and, and we'll have to have you back when, uh, when, uh, uh, a Kraken goes public or something, <laughs> something yeah. like that. The, um, uh, where do people reach you, Dave? What's the best way for folks interested in, in uh, sort of learning more? Where should they go? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's a, a bunch of different, you know, great resources out there on the industry. Um, you know, I mean, for, for those that are actually interested in getting into uh, cryptocurrency directly, I mean, Kraken.com is, is obviously one place where you can, you know, go open an account and, and, you know, start dabbling in the, in the space. Um, and so that's one place. I mean, beyond that, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of great, you know, news resources and so forth out there just by doing a quick search on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you can get a plethora of, uh, information about the industry. The, the book, by the way, that I was referring to at the beginning was Don Tapscott's book, um, that you've, I'm sure read. Yeah, no, indeed. And, and even had a chance to, to chat with him, uh, you know, after he had a couple of his different uh, uh, book signings and conferences. And yeah, I think he's been a great ambassador for the industry. Great. Kraken.com. Can you spell Kraken? Yeah, it's K-R-A-K-E-N. Awesome. Dave Ripley, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L